Well, this is uh, this is kind of an interesting situation. How are you doing, Eric? I'm I'm okay, Ben. Thanks for asking. You're a little, okay. I'm I'm. It's like I'm having an out of body experience, but that's fine. You know what? That that's completely appropriate. I'm I'm feeling the same way. I'm a little nervous, but I do have a question for you. Oh, hit me! I'm so ready. I've been Say... waiting my whole life, or at least the last two years. <laughs> Say that you had a boss, uh-huh. and this boss was known for his bad temper. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense, though, because we live in a meritocracy, and the only re- way he'd be above me was if he was better than me. Right, if he was very nice and a good person, morally. Yeah. So already, <laughs> this is the realm of fantasy. <laughs> if you were given a piece of information that you were fairly sure would make him mad Mm -hmm. but he would need to know anyway would you tell him i'm gonna i know i was like setting up a bit where like i love my boss and he's great but like i'm gonna reverse that and say that i hate him now and i'm gonna take it to the media instead It's uh, it's interesting you say that because that is the exact same choice that the people in the story. I'm made. so happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, and uh, just just one more question to throw in there: You want to go to Disneyland? <laughs> Always. All right. Who doesn't? You'd have to be some kind of communist to not want to go to <laughs> Disneyland. Big time whoopsies. My name is Eric McAdams. And this is a podcast about incompetence. Normally, every every episode, I have a friend on and I tell him all about a story from history involving massive incompetence, but that's not what's happening today. Nope. We're, we're, we're flipping the script here. This time I got my friend Ben on and basically it's his show from now on. He's going to tell the story and I'm going to be the peanut gallery. I have the power now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's like I've uh, thrown my own little revolution, which is fitting for today's story. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been a huge fan of this podcast for a long time, and I've been even a guest once. Mm-hmm. About, the, I, uh, about the war that happened in Peru and Chile, well, and yes, Bolivia. over uh, sodium nitrate in the Atacama Desert, I believe. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was quite the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have many jokes for that, but today... That's not going to be my priority. <laughs> a couple uh, weeks ago, I came to Eric with the idea of telling a story that was more in my wheelhouse that he might not have been familiar with. And so today's story is uh, going to be about sort of my area of historical knowledge, which is the Soviet Union. Yeah, and it should say and, Ben's being very diplomatic here because he knows at least as much about history as I do. <laughs> <laughs> I I really adore history, but the Soviet Union has such an interesting, weird history. I'd almost say it's comparable to a Monty Python skit. And I know, like, nothing about it at all. I really, like, 
I was gonna, I, I know I said this to you while we were like preparing for the episode, Ben, but yeah. I really, I really got almost nothing here. So I'm gonna try to have it both ways where I'm gonna give some context beforehand, but there is a lot of ground to cover in this story, so I will kind of be blowing past some things. And if you have any questions at any point, feel free. Oh, I will. Um, I will. I'm the I'm the jokester now. I'm the joke scientist waiting in the background, <laughs> ready to hit you with my formulas. The other thing I wanted to say is a big theme in this story is the political conflict and disagreements over the general merits of capitalism versus communism. Mm-hmm. 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 For the sake of this being a comedy show... I am not going to get into this debate. Okay. I'm not going to state my own political views, of which I have some. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we are just going to have a fun time comedy hour. You can, with... you can, you can, I don't know. I feel like the general position of the Major Cast Network is that <laughs> capitalism is a bad time and we should get rid of it. So we can, we can, we can just stick, stick with that. We can roll with that we're, direction. We're, we're, we're just going to tell the story. <laughs> and the story shall begin like this march 5th 1953 joseph stalin dies aha the death of stalin stalin had been struggling uh following a stroke he apparently suffocated on his own tongue when he died what? uh and Fun. was completely conscious for the entire time <laughs> i say this because uh he was responsible for the death of at a conservative estimate, a lot of people. Yeah, and fuck that and guy. He deserved he to be conscious while he choked to death. An incredibly paranoid, brutal dictator. And in the ensuing days after his death, there was a power struggle among the Central Committee of the Soviet Union Communist Party. This is depicted in the movie The Death of Stalin. If you haven't seen it, Please do. It's very funny. Yeah, and which which I have thankfully seen, forming the, basically the basis of my whole knowledge of this era of Soviet history. It's a great movie, and it's fairly accurate to what actually happened during the struggle. But long story short, Nikita Khrushchev becomes premier of the Soviet Union after this. What made Khrushchev distinct in the following months and years is that he would start to liberalize the Soviet Union, start to allow more freedoms of political uh, representation is the wrong word, but you could basically be not a communist in the Soviet Union now. Damn, that's cool. He allowed greater freedom of speech. He allowed slightly <laughs> greater freedom of the press. Hell yeah, and sort of. In it, well, we'll get to that in a second. Hell yeah, with terms and conditions. Slightly for a reason. <laughs> At a meeting of the 20th International Convention of the Communist Party, he held a secret meeting, specifically among members of the uh, Soviet government, where for four hours he detailed every single recorded crime that he could fit of Stalin's administration. Wow. It was a massive rebuke. And the beginning of a new era, few people recognized the potential for what this new era could bring them the United States. After all, in the immediate wake of World War II, Stalin really had been hostile. He had broken a promise that when the Soviet Union had acquired...
acquired the parts of Eastern Europe that the Nazis had invaded, he was going to allow free elections. That didn't happen. It created the Iron Curtain that we so famously know. Uh, so there was hope initially, starting in 1953, that there would be this increase in liberalization. Yeah, I love it when there's hope initially. <laughs> there is initial hope. And that hope is dashed completely against the rocks in 1956. Yeah. Hungarian anti-communists, as well as some Hungarian communists, stage a revolution in, uh, what's the capital of Hungary? Budapest? Budapest. Budapest. Uh, they stage a revolution in Budapest. The revolution lasts about a week before Khrushchev sends in the tank division of the Red Army. Goodness! The conservative estimate is that about 20,000 people are killed. All right, Khrushchev. Well, I was on your side for like a minute there. <laughs> so, and of course, there is some controversy about... I won't get into it too much, but there, needless to say, there's some controversy about what actually happened, who was representing the anti-communist forces, because, yes, because it was Hungary and because some of them were anti-communists, some of the revolutionaries were former Nazis, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which mm -hmm. happened a lot in Eastern Europe at, during this time period, regardless of this. The West really began to start distrusting the Soviet Union again. Gosh, I wonder why. <laughs> what this led to was the height of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. This is the era of the greatest paranoia. This is the duck and cover era. Yeah. This is the and... era when Nick Fury was active. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, he was part of the Cold War. <laughs> Probably not the height of the Cold War, like, later. That's his, like, canon backstory. He was a Cold War spy. That's so interesting. Yeah, Nick Fury is, fun fact, a terrible person. So, here we get into the actual instigating incident of our story. Height of the Cold War, stuff's happening. May of 1958, Nikita Khrushchev orders Western powers out of Eastern Berlin. Mm -hmm. Berlin, because of World War II, had been split between West and East, West being controlled by the Western power, East by the Soviet Union. Khrushchev is telling them to get out, and what this results in is a conference in Geneva that the Soviet, British, and French ambassadors all go to to try and resolve the deal. Now, while this is happening... There is the equivalent of a world fair that Khrushchev decides to hold in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. It's called the Soviet Exposition, and it's meant to both show people in the Soviet Union technologies from the capitalist West, and it's meant to bring foreign dignitaries in to see the accomplishments of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. After all, this was just a few years after the Soviet Union became the first power to launch something into space. Yeah. With the Sputnik program. Yeah. And I can see them kind were... of be trying to be like technological equals, that kind of... Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if anything, Cold War historians view this period of time like 1956 to 1962 as the height of like when you would want to live in the Soviet Union. Uh, this was if I was going to live in the Soviet Union, it would be for six years. <laughs> <laughs> really, just the six-year period of time, like during Khrushchev's administration. Mm -hmm. While this meeting in Geneva is going on, and while the fair is going on, Dwight David Eisenhower, President of the United States, invites Khrushchev 
to the United States to discuss disagreements and common goals of the USSR and U.S. Nuclear proliferation had been going on at this time. Mm -hmm. And both parties, at least what they said initially, were interested in disarmament. So Eisenhower sends this letter. Except something happens. The letter is transcribed by one of Eisenhower's aides. And orally, he's told by a different aide, oh, you have to also include the message that uh, Eisenhower's actually trying to convey, which is Khrushchev can only come to the United States if he commits to resolving the Berlin crisis by telling these diplomats in Geneva, oh, they need to wrap this up. So Eisenhower's saying, you can't come here unless we do this. Mm -hmm. The aide forgets to include this in the letter. <laughs> ah and the letter shoot <laughs> of course dang the desk of nikita khrushchev uh-huh so khrushchev sees this letter and what he thinks is oh this is a no strings attached invitation this is wonderful i've always wanted to go to the united states he even <laughs> said that. oh this would be great <laughs> Uh, he In the letter, he was invited to Camp David, which, uh, according to biographers after the fact, he was really disturbed by because he didn't know what Camp David was. Okay. So there's kind of precedent here. In 1919, when the Bolsheviks first came to power, mm-hmm. the United States' first peace offering with them, they the U.S. said, come to this island right off the coast of Turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what the name of the island is, but come there. You're going to meet us there. We're going to have talks. Well, the Soviet dignitaries went there, and it was an island completely abandoned except for dogs that are sent to die. Uh-huh. And the Americans specifically did it to embarrass them. So that kind of began the Soviet tradition of never trusting Americans. Oh, good. Cool. Great. <laughs> that That's what started it. Uh-huh. And so Khrushchev at first thought that this was a similar thing until a spy explained, oh, no, Camp David is basically like a, it's the American equivalent of a dasha, which is right. a Russian variety of mansion. And Khrushchev was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> okay, chill. Khrushchev decided to respond to it by saying, oh, why don't you send somebody to the Soviet Union, to the Soviet Expo? Mm-hmm. And Eisenhower sends the man that he thinks is most capable of doing the job, a young upstart Republican senator by the name of Richard Nixon. Uh, who is uh, great at foreign policy. That's like his one thing. Uh, well, yeah, and yeah, he certainly was. He got there. Yep. Been... <laughs> yep, I was going to say that's like his one thing. Uh, only Nixon could go to China. Yeah. And that's it. This Mm -hmm. was kind of the proving event for that. While Nixon comes to the fair and he and Khrushchev do this joint press conference, and while they're doing the press conference, Khrushchev just kind of starts needling him. He says, like, oh, they they send, you know, this kind of shrimpy-looking motherfucker. (laughs) And saying in those exact words, I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, he starts making fun of him. He's doing it for the crowd of Soviet citizens. And Nixon manages to keep his cool, but he's obviously kind of pissed about it. So they walk around. That's weird. That doesn't sound like him. (laughs) He's not the kind of man to hold a grudge. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. 
No. Um, so they walk around the fair. They visit the Pepsi booth. Uh, Khrushchev tried Pepsi, which he never had before. And Pepsi, in return, made a very now famous advertisement of Khrushchev drinking it. Uh, but He was like, was... damn, this is like Coke, but kind of sweeter. He basically said, like, oh, this is kind of delicious, you know. Chill. Another right. thing that's important about this is that Khrushchev knew nothing about the United States outside of the writings of, like, two Soviet authors who had been there. Cool. Oh, so it's like, it's like the fucking painter who had to paint, like, exotic animals using only descriptions. Yes, exactly. And they'd make oh, lions look like dogs. so good. But that's kind of indicative of how isolated the Soviet Union was at this time. Yeah. Uh, where even the premier knew this little about the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, Khrushchev apparently thought there was rat poison in Pepsi. Uh, nice, nice. And he was uh, relieved that there was not. Yeah, I would be too if I just drank it. <laughs> the reason I tell you about this is because Nixon and Khrushchev were walking along and they entered one of the fair's main attractions, which was the model American home. And this was to be Nixon's presentation to the premiere. Oh, this is Inside, fraught. Inside, there was a recreation of the average American kitchen. And it had household appliances, refrigerators. After all, this was the era of new kitchen convenience. Yeah. Uh, I know in a pickle for the knowing one, you talked about uh, Jello and mass production. Yeah, staff. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is the era of like making cooking easy for the American household. And so Nixon's giving this presentation, and he makes a comment about how American women are able to fulfill their role in the household better than ever. And Khrushchev interrupts him, saying, "Well, in the Soviet Union, women have a lot more freedom than it sounds like they do in America." Mm -hmm. And then Nixon stopped <laughs> and kind of shot back a remark about, like, how free can they actually be if the government dictates such and such and such? And then Khrushchev shot back. Yeah. Then Nixon shot back again. <laughs> this was an incident that would come to be known as the kitchen debate. Nice, nice, nice. The reason that this is famous <laughs> is because... They got into a heated argument about the virtues of communism versus capitalism and how technological advancement could happen under one and whether people had better quality of life under one, mm -hmm. which would be one thing, considering it's conversations that American and Soviet diplomats would have with each other on the regular. Mm -hmm. Both ABC News and Pravda were uh, recording it live. <laughs> I did not know about this. I had and not heard of this. it was being broadcast live to both the United States and the Soviet Union. All right. This was the first time that both Americans and Soviet citizens really got a sense of the debate that leaders were having with each other. Mm -hmm. And the importance of this in our story is that Americans first got a sense of Nikita Khrushchev, and for the most part, they really liked him. <laughs> pulled polling really well. He actually polled really well. They nice. thought he was, you know, Khrushchev is famously this very bald, kind of rotund, baby-looking guy. Yeah, he looks like a Russian Winston Churchill. Yeah, played uh, by Steve Buscemi in the movie. 
And he is an argumentative dude. He's a dude with a short temper. He knows how to bring back, you know, a conversation. Knows how to clap back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he knows how to clap back. And Americans respected that. (laughs) And so now there was this demand like, oh, can this guy come here? (laughs) Can we get this guy on TV a little more often? Give this guy a game show. It, It really made... Eisenhower's offer all the more appealing. Now, the other thing that it did is it made Richard Nixon a household celebrity. And specifically because of this event, he would run as a Republican primary contender in 1960 and eventually become the nominee uh, against JFK. Yeah, which went great for him. Did not go great for him. But eight years later, he was the president. Yeah, yeah. So this kitchen debate becomes a massive media success. Uh, Mm -hmm. To quote one uh, guy on the street being interviewed in the New York Times, they're both hams, but it was some show. Another person said of Khrushchev, loud and jovial, but the kind of man you'd expect to punch someone in the face if they disrespected their sacred brotherhood. All right. Um, That's an interesting turn of phrase there, random citizen. I, I figure they were talking about, like, Kiwanis or Rotary Club. Like, Sacred Brotherhood was a real out-of-left-field ending to that sentence. No, it, it's very strange. America was a weird place during yeah. this time. It's always, uh, it's always funny hearing quotes from people, like, before, like, mass mass media was a thing. Like, right. before, before people could it be expected to, like see media all the time essentially because that really kind of codifies like and and standardizes communication and before that it's just people used any old word they wanted right it's like my grandmother had this old phrase of when hector was a pup which is just like no idea where that comes from i don't think anybody but her had said it yeah i haven't heard it before but yeah you're absolutely right it's these pockets that yeah yeah uh, so Man, I hate it when someone disrespects my sacred brotherhood. <laughs> it happens all the time, and I have to punch so many people. <laughs> I hate to see it. Uh, the rest of the trip to the Soviet Union was miserable. Uh, the most consistent thing that happened was Nixon would be introduced to a crowd of typical workers. I'm doing air quotes, but this is an audio medium. Yeah. Uh, what would happen was one of them would stand up and say... I am an average worker, and I want to know, insert extremely specific question about nuclear proliferation and disarmament that was clearly placed. (laughs) Um, All right. In the book that this story came from, which is a great book, it's called K. Blow's Top. There's this anecdote about how the American press who were on the tour would start taking bets about the exact moment that a worker would stand up and start saying something along those lines. Uh Uh-huh. So, you know, even though things were beginning to thaw, like, just in terms of, like, liberalized rights in the Soviet Union, government control over things that don't necessarily need government control was... For sure. The the mark of the day. Yeah. And this would actually be the cause of drama about something we're going to get to after the break. Mm -hmm. But needless to say, Khrushchev, at the very end of it, told Nixon his intention to visit the United States, which is unprecedented so far in history, because the USSR was considered a hostile power. The United States had never 
hosted a state visit for a hostile power before. Hmm. So this would be a very big deal. And of yeah. course, there is a media firestorm. We're in the middle of the second Red Scare. The uh, McCarthy hearings had only ended about five years before this. Mm -hmm. um, and so people were slightly terrified, and there was pretty public opposition. William F. Buckley, who another person who might be deserving of his own episode of Big Time. Oh, Oops. my God, yeah. As the Ben that, Shapiro of his time. Hey, yeah, have you, you've seen the, the Netflix thing. Um, oh, my God, Best of Enemies. Yeah. So for listeners who might not know, William F. Buckley was, I call him the Ben Shapiro of his time because he was a massive debate dork. Yeah. And his most famous debate, very humorously, um, was against liberal intellectual and writer Gore Vidal, mm -hmm. to which at the end of it, uh, Vidal angered Buckley to the point that uh, Buckley threatened to punch him in the mouth like the goddamn queer he was. Yeah. Yeah, a guy, he's the founder of the conservative magazine National Review, uh, utter piece of shit. Yeah. But anyway, uh, he sold stickers out of the National Review that said, Khrushchev not welcome, which fucking got him, dude. Yeah, wow, good one. You got his goose. Dang. Uh, the visit was opposed by veterans of foreign wars, because the Korean War had just ended. Mm -hmm. uh, the International Association of Churches... I don't, I don't really understand why they were doing that. I guess because religion was banned in the Soviet Union. Sure. The FBI apparently caught so many death threats towards Khrushchev's in the run-up to his visit that they were terrified. Like, J. Edgar Hoover said, oh, my agents are terrified at one point. Uh, they later described one letter from the Iowa doctor to President Eisenhower that described in detail an assassination plot for Khrushchev using radioactive material. And the FBI apparently thought the plan was so brilliant that they kept three active agents on him until Khrushchev left the United States. All right, yeah. This is like, this guy's got it together. We need to up our game here. Yeah, so the mood was both excited and tense. There were people who wanted to meet him. Some people wrote letters to Khrushchev offering to bring him in to, for tea. Some offer, one farmer apparently offered to let him meet his cow, because it yeah. was apparently a very big and famous cow. Yeah, I, you know, look, uh, I've I've got, like, three things in my life that are interesting, Ben, and one of them is my cow, and I want Nikita Khrushchev to meet it. You know what? I'm not gonna judge. Cows are <laughs> wonderful. They're spectacular creatures, and we'll leave it at that. I think my favorite excited person for this was Louis Armstrong who, for whatever reason, he was asked by a, a journalist, like, oh, what do you think about Khrushchev visiting the United States? To which Louis Armstrong responded, he's a cat man, he's a human being, like anybody else, and he should come here to, see, to visit a jazz club in order to hear, and I quote, the swinging feel of freedom. All right, Louis, you can you can stop doing the the self promotion now. <laughs> a man liked him some jazz. You know, <laughs> jazz you know what he should listen to? Jazz. <laughs> the trip is happening. Khrushchev mm -hmm. is on his way to the United States. Uh, I found this kind of funny. His aides came to him privately at one point and said, uh, "This is the U.S. We might need like cash on hand because we don't know how stores work there." 
And Khrushchev was like, okay, I'll give you guys all $30. That seems like a good amount. So they all just had $30 for the entire trip. Yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> we're going to be subsisting off of like the cheapest food imaginable. The two details most important to our story. Uh-huh. Number one, his security team argued that most destinations, including Washington, D.C., New York, and most parts of L.A. would be safe for him to visit, except for one place in the itinerary where both his wife and daughters, who would also be coming on the trip, had expressed interest. And that would be Disneyland. Of course! It's a security nightmare! had only recently just opened, and of course it was internationally famous, but... The general public would be allowed in that day, and the security team said there's probably going to be no way we can guarantee a safety there. So it was put on the back burner, but nobody told Khrushchev's aides. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, we're going to Disneyland, boss! This shall become important later. Nice. The second thing that is important to know His security forces, while meeting with the United States uh, security forces that would be serving as his escort, said that if anything bad were to happen to Nikita Khrushchev, there would be a guarantee of nuclear war. (laughs) Famously, the head of Nikita Khrushchev's security team, when saying this to, I believe it was Henry Cabot Lodge, he dropped his hand on the desk that he was across from and split it open like this. <laughs> Mushroom cloud. He did Just, a little, he, he mimed out a bomb. He mimed out a bomb and said, boom. <laughs> like a kid at the playground who's like, you know what I'm going to do to you if you do that? He like mimes out a machine gun. Right. End all life on earth in mutually assured destruction. This man, <laughs> this man <laughs> breaks a fingernail the whole world goes. <laughs> You're fucked, okay? <laughs> Us <And> too. <laughs> We're all dead. With the menace and the kind of silly detail about not being able to go to Disneyland in mind, mm-hmm. Khrushchev was ready to go to the United States. Yeah, he's got his swim trunks all packed. Which we will follow up on after an ad from the Major Cast Network. It feels so powerful to say that. do 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 people ask me why should i listen to your podcast because there's like 10 million x-files podcasts in there i say one we give great commentary because all those other x-files podcasts they're just like fucking masturbating over chris carter's creation number two we will make you come Whether you like it or not. Yeah, it's going to happen. We'll, we'll hit a button sooner or later. Yeah, we're, you know what? We're going to cover so many fucking hot topics. And one of them, someday, going to be yours. Gonna and be you yours. might not even know it. You'll be sitting there listening. You'll be like, oh, damn. I completed. And I didn't even know that was my thing. Five stars. <laughs> Review, please. Catch the Double X Files Tuesdays at noon on your favorite podcast app. Baby, we'll treat you so right. So Khrushchev arrives in the United States. Uh, his first day there, he 
has a state dinner with Eisenhower, uh, and Eisenhower really wanted to take him on a tour, a helicopter tour of the D.C. suburbs. Okay. Like, he specifically showed him the D.C. Beltway, and then they flew over Tacoma Park specifically, Mm -hmm. and Beltsville, Maryland. All right, well, uh, shout out to Tacoma Park, I guess. my The closest metro stop to me. <laughs> uh, but they got, later... a, they, got a, they got a couple good restaurants around there. <laughs> I don't know what else you'd show a foreign leader. <laughs> I, I mean, so Ike's, his motivation for showing Khrushchev this was to show him, like, see, you can have this sort of vibrant, like, suburban area without a controlled economy. You can have it in a free market setting. This is important to note because every person Khrushchev and his family and everybody who was there would interact with in the United States, like, had the goal of wanting to prove capitalism to him. Oh, my God. That would be, like, the worst meet and greet. Everybody. Yeah. Hi, how are you guys doing? Having a good day? Hey, I'd just like to talk to you for a minute about my favorite economic system. But they would constantly do this. They would be like, oh, well, uh, I bet, you know, your average Joe uh, Smirnoff can't, uh, you know, can't buy his own car and doesn't have, like, I don't know, what, jello molds or something like that. <laughs> Which... You know, it, it's a continuation of what was going on with the kitchen debate. Everybody wanted to have their own kitchen debate moment with Khrushchev. Oh my god, the worst. This man is having the worst vacation of all time. It, so, it's no wonder this turns out the way it does. <laughs> it's only going to get worse from here that I can uh. guarantee you. The first thing they brought him to was a lecture on horticulture at an agricultural research firm at in Beltsville, Maryland. It took four hours. It was a four-hour-long lecture. I think I drove past there recently. Yeah. So the entire there's a there's a Costco in Beltsville, and I think and I think there's like the agricultural museum or something that's like right there. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like I think the FDA is out there. Yeah, it's weird place. Yeah. All right, so I little did I know the history yeah. that I was steeped in. But it's kind of interesting. He, well, it's not that interesting, actually. He was so bored by it. That yes, agriculture. It, he stormed out of the building and went to the experimentation pens, where they were holding animals that they had been genetically engineering. Oh, the ones that they were just cramming full of antibiotics. Basically, so the first thing he went up to, he hopped into the pig pen and started uh, slapping the pig that was there on the butt, saying it was too fat. He said that in the Soviet Union's pigs were not that fat because they didn't need pig fat. Uh, Okay. He got into an argument with a scientist about a turkey he saw. Because Uh at this point, and this was a kind of interesting phenomenon I knew nothing about, the U.S. was trying to grow turkeys that were the size of, like, roasting chickens because they thought that would cause people to buy more turkeys. By making them smaller? By making them smaller. That's weird. Because, you know, when you tend to buy a turkey, what are they? Like, 30-some pounds? Yeah. Yeah, and they take forever to cook, but if you have them... So it kind of makes sense. 
Also, I just tend to be of the opinion that turkey is an inferior meat compared yeah, to I, others. I didn't want to get into politics on this, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, he was confused about why the turkey was so small. He was like, the turkey should be big. In the Soviet Union, we make the turkeys as big as possible. You should not be making it small. <laughs> and then he apparently picked it up by its feet and started patting its belly. All right. He was just kind of a character, you know? Yeah, and I guess good for you, Nikki. Have a time. The two things that define his personality are he loved patting things on the belly. <laughs> and if you, like, were slightly critical of him, he would have a red face tantrum. Nice. Okay. How can so, you not like this guy? He, he's kind of hard to hate. I, I kind of <laughs> love him. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I should be in the business on this podcast of picking favorite Soviet premieres, but yeah. Just, no, I'm not going to be like, this, this guy is great. He is not actually great. He is a bad person. <laughs> we want to, we at the major cast would like to make it very clear that we do not support the violent quashing of uprisings. And now a very special message for the major cast network. <laughs> Just a quick PSA. <laughs> he, was, he then went to New York. Uh, he was to give a speech at the UN. Uh, first, he was going to have <laughs> Added a... all of them on the belly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, there is... Oh, God, I wish I could send it to you, but there's a phenomenal picture from this visit that he did. When he went to Iowa, he found a farmer that had a really big belly and started patting him on it. And there's this picture of him just, like, smiling like the happiest person on Earth doing it. All right, well, we'll we'll, we'll find it. We'll, we'll link it in the description of the episode. It's so very sweet. Anyway, just little details about his New York visit, because this is not the meat of the story. Uh, he was supposed to have a commemorative lunch at the Waldorf Astoria. However, this was canceled because three months before, the American Dental Association had scheduled their 100th anniversary party there. <laughs> and they basically said, to the city of New York, cancel the Khrushchev dinner or we're going to go to the media. And they went to the media, and New York was like, okay, fine, you can stay there. So they just moved down the street. But this did not stop Khrushchev and the party from staying at the Waldorf Astoria. And while they were there... Hung out with some with those dentists. <laughs> that probably did happen at some yeah. point. But even better, while they were there, they were going up in the elevator, and it broke down between floors. Yeah. So and then the like, elevator operator was like, I bet this happens uh, all the time in communist Russia. Well, somebody did make a comment similar to that, but what the actual kind of money shot of that entire event was, was when they had to push Khrushchev out of the elevator to mm -hmm. the floor above, uh, all of the Russian and American aides pushing his ass. Yeah. The press, of course, got a picture of. Yeah. Uh, it was apparently such a humiliating event for the hotel. One woman, uh, under condition of anonymity, wrote a letter to Time magazine saying, Conrad Hilton, resign. Conrad Hilton of Hilton Hotels owned the Waldorf Astoria. The letter finished off, or as you shall now be addressed, Comrade Hilton. Yeah, got him. Got him. Comrade Hilton, which is my new Twitter handle. Yeah. <laughs> and so a couple other things happened in New York. He got invited to 
a party with a bunch of capitalists that he hated and got into an argument with some people. Met Nelson Rockefeller, who was the third and final person who I would recommend doing a big time whoopsies on, because mm-hmm. uh, he was probably the most prominent liberal Republican in history. Huh. Uh, which did not make him popular with other Republicans. Yeah, that makes sense. But the most important thing that happened in New York was Khrushchev delivered a speech to the United Nations General Assembly. And in this speech, he argued for complete nuclear disarmament. As far as contemporary historians can tell, he was acting in complete good faith with this. He was actually willing and open to disarm nuclear warheads in the Soviet Union on the condition that the U.S. and I can't remember who else had nuclear weapons at this point did so as well. Huh. I did not know that. Yeah. You know, because the Soviet Union really did – it would become a different situation in the Brezhnev era – uh, which I won't go into that deeply. But, yeah, more on that in a minute, maybe. Yeah, military production uh, was not quite the booming moneymaker for the Soviet economy that it was during World War II and would become later. Mm. Uh, so that happened. And after that, he flew out to L.A. While he was on the flight to L.A., he had two scheduled events. One was a luncheon in his honor at 20th Century Fox, where he would see the production of a movie. Sure. The other would be a luncheon hosted by the mayor of L.A. In between that, he had time in the afternoon. And so his American host, who was Henry Cabot Lodge, who's a famous Massachusetts legislator, asked him, so, or he told him, there's basically three options that we have. Keeping in mind that nobody had communicated the whole Disneyland thing to him. Yeah. Uh, we could visit a housing development, we could go to a supermarket, or we could go to Disneyland. Gosh, I wonder which one you would, which one I would pick. Of course, Khrushchev picked Disneyland. Yeah. So, here's the thing about that. Only three groups of people in the world at this point knew about him going to Disneyland. The security aides that said no, but didn't tell anybody no. <laughs> Cabot Lodge and Khrushchev himself, who intended to go, and the person who had suggested the idea to Henry Cabot Lodge, Walt Disney. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So, Disney, continuing with a theme from earlier, invited Khrushchev to Disneyland because he wanted to show off to him. Yeah, look, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) So Disney had kind of... He's just doing what Louis Armstrong did a minute ago. But Disney also had a couple other motivations. One, he wanted to show Khrushchev a ride called the Submarine Voyage, which would later be the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and nowadays Finding Nemo ride. Uh The submarines on this ride were based off of actual U.S. Army submarines. And he wanted to show off, like military might to Khrushchev through this ride. In my mind, I'm just doing a jerk-off motion at this. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off, Walt Disney. Uh, Disney's other motivation was that he was a fervent anti-communist. Historians nowadays and biographers speculate that this was because, this is not a really well-known fact, Disney's father was a socialist. 
Mm. He was a supporter and, I believe, delegate for Eugene Debs in the early 1900s, and he was a failed businessman, which Walt apparently resented. Of course he would, yeah. And both that and a union dispute would lead Disney at one point to testify in front of the House on American Affairs Committee, chaired by uh, McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Disney was not a great guy. Yeah, um, no, he was not. But he was really hoping the Khrushchev could come. So Khrushchev touches ground in L.A. He meets Mayor Paulson. Mayor Paulson had decided at this point that he, during the dinner that they were going to have that night, was going to find a way to embarrass Khrushchev. <laughs> cool. All right. So God. the stage is set. Yeah. Khrushchev is on his way in the limo to 20th Century Fox. At 20th Century Fox, Khrushchev met Shirley MacLaine, and she performed the Can-Can from the set of her movie, Can-Can. He was there for the luncheon, which everyone in Hollywood wanted to attend, and pretty much every single person that you would recognize from that era was there. Nice. I'm not going to go through the entire list, but of course, Liz Taylor, Frank Sinatra, Debbie Reynolds, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Josh Gabor, Kirk Douglas, etc., etc. Huh. Uh, and, of course, the guest of honor, Marilyn Monroe. Naturally. During this luncheon, which took place at around noon, the head of the LAPD's escort for Khrushchev approached Cabot Lodge and related an anecdote about the drive over it with Khrushchev's motorcade. Apparently, a protester had thrown a tomato at the motorcade, narrowly missing Khrushchev's own limo and hitting a car. What this indicated to the chief is that there was really no way that they could take Khrushchev anywhere public, and this was when Cabot Lodge found out that Khrushchev couldn't go to Disney. All right. An aide of Khrushchev overheard this conversation and immediately told Khrushchev. Khrushchev sent the aide back, voicing his displeasure. For the next five minutes this little snit would not be relevant. Lodge got up to address the crowd and introduce Khrushchev at this luncheon. He delved into a speech on the importance of capitalism in creating Hollywood. At one point, Kay apparently interrupted him, shouting out, we have this new movie in Russia. It's called Fight for the Fatherland. Have you seen it? And Lodge said, no, we don't really get Soviet movies here. And Khrushchev apparently shouted back, you should buy it. It's very good. <laughs> Fucking shit-stirrer. <laughs> oh my god, he's a shit-stirrer. But here we go, into the caldera of shit. Yeah. Khrushchev stood up to compare himself to Spiros Skouros, who was the president of 20th Century Fox. Skouros was born a Greek peasant, had come to the United States, and became a millionaire off of the ownership of movie theaters. From that, became the head of 20th Century Fox. Khrushchev argued that he was a similar figure in his speech. Since he was born a worker, had held the position of, like, metallurgist and officer in the Red Army during the Soviet Civil War, and managed to rise to the position of premier. Skoros heckled him, calling the role of the worker in the Soviet Union monopolistic to his face, and that even the U.S. had managed to send aid during the famine of the Russian Civil War in 1922. I'm not going to get too into this. Mm-hmm. But during the Russian Civil War, uh, which was from the end of the Bolshevik Revolution to around 1922, sure. 
The United States funded the White Army, which was the opposition to the Red Army. Mm -hmm. That was the actual beginning of hostilities between the capitalist West and the Soviet Union. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I guess it would be, wouldn't it? And so Khrushchev pointed this out to Skoros. And as a result of that, Khrushchev launched into a tirade about how well artists were treated in the USSR. And how the U.S. artists had to beg for scraps from the wealthiest. And he even threw in a jab about how the U.S. didn't have a permanent ballet company. (laughs) In in the Soviet Union, they were very very passionate about the things that they were good at that nobody else cared about, like gymnastics. No, yeah, that's that's a thousand percent true. Like hockey, gymnastics. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah super passionate about it because it's like oh our state-run program can do this yeah so khrushchev as he's giving this speech is getting angrier and angrier and at one point he goes back to his notes and starts to wrap up Mm -hmm. and then he wraps up his speech and he takes a moment and takes a deep breath and then he says just now i've been told that i cannot go to disneyland because they cannot guarantee my safety I ask, why not? Are there rocket launching pads there? And I say, I would very much like to go and see Disneyland. But then, we cannot guarantee your security, they say. Then what must I do? Commit suicide? What is it? Is there an epidemic of cholera there or something? Or have gangsters taken hold of the place that can destroy me? That's the situation I find myself in. I cannot conceive the words to explain this to my people. That is a direct quote of how he ended the speech in 20th Century Fox. That's very good. The entire room met this with silence, save for his wife, who turned to her seatmate, Frank Sinatra, and said, you know, I was a little disappointed that we couldn't go to Disneyland. And Frank Sinatra, who apparently responded to her that if it really would make a difference, he would take them later in the day. Which was kind of a nice thing of Frank Sinatra to offer. What a weird guy Frank Sinatra was. He, the entire rap pack is utterly fascinating. Sammy Davis Jr. was like a Satanist. It was a lot. Anyway. Yeah, and and there was the time Frank Sinatra like got upstaged by some like teen pop idol and like threatened to kill himself because he like wasn't a teen pop idol, I guess. Oh yeah, and you could definitely make the argument that like. Part of the reason that he made this comment was he heard the comment Khrushchev made about gangsters and was like, oh, gangsters, there's no problem if I'm there. I mean, No, if it's gangsters, I got this. <laughs> right, it's, it, but it's that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so Khrushchev throws this tantrum. He calms down a little bit, and they take him to the housing development. While they're driving to the housing development, there's a Hungarian <laughs> protester along the route. And he starts heckling him. And Khrushchev goes into another tantrum. Yeah. And he says, do you really think the pr- uh, he accuses Eisenhower of staging this event? Because he's already a- in a bad mood, and now he's just, like, saying shit. Well, and he's also used to this the state staging this kind of stuff to embarrass. That is like... exactly correct. Yeah. Henry Cabot Lodge, who at this point was just fucking irritated with the guy, said... Do you really think the president would invite you just to arrange for someone to heckle you about your foreign policy? To which Khrushchev responded, in Russia, that is something I'd have a say in. 
Okay, but also, like, yeah, what do you, like, <laughs> this whole time, <laughs> just no, that's all it, that's been happening. He really was just, like, cranky at this point. Yeah. But it's also a state visit, and he's developing his notion of what America stands for as a result of this. Mm-hmm. To one extent, you want to sympathize with the guy, but to another extent, like... Fuck this guy! <laughs> yeah, he, he is a dictator. He, yeah! He, you know, he's he's not a he's not a good person. He's doing all the stuff that's he he did all the stuff that's like making him mad here. Right. So all of this is important because it's going to set the moment the mood rather for the final part of our story. And that was the dinner that Mayor Paulson was halting in Khrushchev's honor that night. Mm-hmm. Now recall that Paulson had committed prior to this and said this in a later biography that he wanted to personally humiliate Khrushchev. Yep. Khrushchev is coming. He's gonna pants Khrushchev. Well. It's it's gonna happen. He's committed. He has a team of Navy SEALs. (laughs) They're gonna pants Nikita Khrushchev. This is their... The most important job they've ever done. <laughs> this is the highest stakes mission they've ever undertaken. He's wearing boxers with little hearts on them. <laughs> and he's going to cover up this grin and say, oh no! The, fir- the, first, the first team has to snip his suspenders. <laughs> the second team has to get in there. Phase three. <laughs> God, and then extraction. The whistle sound effect. And that's when the audience of stand-in points and laughs. Kay arrives in a horrible mood to this gala. Yeah. The mayor gets up to make his toast to Khrushchev. While he's making this notes, he expresses his umbrage with comments that Khrushchev had actually had made Mm -hmm. about how communism would bury capitalism. Now... This quote is noteworthy because it was not the first time that somebody had asked Khrushchev about this publicly. Uh, there were const- there were a bunch of journalists, both in D.C. and New York and in L.A., who said, hey, you made this comment, can you explain what you meant? And every time Khrushchev gave the same explanation, which, to be fair, is a reasonable explanation, mm-hmm. Khrushchev wasn't necessarily referring to the Soviet Union crushing the United States militaristically. Mm -hmm. What he was referring to was the theory of dialectical materialism that the development of history would eventually lead from capitalism inevitably to communism. And in that sense, much as capitalism buried feudalism in Marx's theory, communism would bury capitalism. Yeah. Paulson knew that Khrushchev had explained that, and Khrushchev knew that Khrushchev had explained that. Yeah. So Khrushchev comes up to the podium to make his own remarks. He curtly delivered his prepared remarks, looked up from his notes, and said, That is the end of my prepared remarks. I'd like now to address comments made by the mayor. According to eyewitnesses there, Kay's face grew scarlet red over the course of his rant <laughs> as he explained yet again that his comments were in reference to dialectical materialism and that he had addressed these comments in earlier interviews. Admittedly, he had. The audience expected that he was going to stop there, but he didn't. 
He then proceeded to launch into a tirade about the strength of the USSR as a technological and military power and how communism would not kowtow to any idle threats made by capitalists. This was a form that people had not seen Khrushchev in. They had not seen it in the kitchen debates. They had not seen it in the constant interviews that he had been doing for the media while he Mm -hmm, was in the He finished out his speech by saying, America cannot rub their might in our face or bring us to our shaky knees. If you want to go on with the arms race very well, we accept that challenge. As for the output of rockets, well, they are on the assembly line. This is a most serious question. It is one of life or death, ladies and gentlemen. One of war and peace. Wow. A decidedly different wow. tone than him just a day earlier asking for complete nuclear disarmament at the United Nations. The rest of the trip would proceed without outburst. That was his final one. Some speculate that Nina Khrushchev probably told him that, you know, you've got to stop doing this because it's getting dangerous. Yeah. At the very end of the trip, he and Eisenhower met at Camp David, and while the exact details of the conversation have not been made public, They apparently left on amicable terms, saying that they would commit to another meeting in the year 1960, and that with this, Eisenhower, if he was still president then, could come to the Soviet Union in a similar share to what Khrushchev had just gone through. Mm. Neither of these things would happen. Yeah. Khrushchev on the trip probably realized that the United States was not being a good-faith negotiator. And what solidified this opinion for him was in May of 1960, when the Soviet Union shot down Gary Powers' U-2 spy plane. The United States, in that moment, very publicly were exposed as running one of the most complex espionage operations in the world against the Soviet Union. And as a result of this, two things happened that are very historically significant. Mm -hmm. The first was that the Berlin Crisis Summit was canceled. And as a result of this, Khrushchev enacted his other plan for what would happen in the event that this was not resolved, which was the construction of the Berlin Wall. Mm. Direct consequence of this. Wow. Second consequence of this is that as a response to this, Newly elected President JFK would give the go-ahead to a secret plot by Cuban emigres to overthrow Fidel Castro's newly uh, empowered communist government in Cuba. The Bay of Pigs invasion was so disastrous that Khrushchev retaliated by moving nuclear warheads for Cuba's protection and his own justification, instigating the Cuban Missile Crisis. And as we all know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is the closest non-accidental nuclear incident. I say non-accidental because you've done an entire episode on the accidental. Yeah. The closest that the world has ever come to ending. From their destruction in nuclear warfare. And it's it's because this guy didn't get to go to Disneyland because every single American person that he saw was a huge dick to him. Khrushchev did not go to get to go to Disneyland that the U.S. and Soviet Union would not have an agreement 
or any kind of friendly policy toward one another until its fall in 1991. That's crazy. And Good that lord. Is the end of Khrushchev's visit to America. Oh man, Khrushchev. You know, it's interesting because on one hand you go like you should have just been nice to this guy. Let him go to Disneyland. Like, had a real good faith debate with him. And on the other hand, it's like, we t- we we held this earlier. Like, fuck this guy. <laughs> right. You, you know, and it's kind of interesting because I would argue that both due to his economic policy, his interior policy, and his foreign policy, mm-hmm. Khrushchev's rule was probably the height of the Soviet Union. It was when the country was at its least internally oppressive, it was under him. Yeah. Uh, He would only lose power three years into the 60s -hmm. to an underling, Leonid Brezhnev, who would usher in what's called the era of stagnation or the era of... I'm trying to remember the other term for it, but anyway. Yeah, the Uh, era of stagnation. Yeah. The era of stagnation. Everything after him is just kind of a slow downfall until the Gorbachev era, in which case it's a fast downfall. (laughs) And yeah, uh, nothing bad ever happened after the Soviet Union fell. It was the end of history, and let's leave it at that. Yeah, and we solved every social problem and every foreign policy one, too. Now, we... Okay, okay, okay. So this actually leads in a bit better to the pickle for the knowing ones than I thought it would because with like this whole visit to, um, I'm still doing the pickle for the knowing ones by the way, listeners. Um, the whole uh point of this for the American side of it was to show off for uh this this foreign leader to be like this is what makes America great. This is why this is how we do things. Look at our fucking suburbs. This is true. So we're going to talk about baseball, America's pastime, <laughs> the thing that they should have taken him to a game of, because he would have been like, dude, this sucks. And they would have been I, like, yeah, but it, here's the thing. It's great, actually. I can't believe this. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, here we go. So the specific incident happened in 1999, uh, it, and, it, and it was done by a man named Bobby Valentine. Oh my god, what a great name. I know, and I'm guessing that even that even though you spent time in Boston, you still don't know who he is. Bobby Valentine uh-huh. is a former baseball player and also a former uh, baseball manager. And, he's, and he managed several different uh, teams, including the Texas Rangers, a few in Japan. Uh, he had a disastrous tenure with the Boston Red Sox for one year. Um that uh and was fired kind of immediately after that um but he was he also managed the new york mets was he also mr met did he like go in the costume every night i I don't think so so bobby valentine has a somewhat eccentric uh reputation Mm -hmm. i don't there aren't a ton of like really good stories of him aside from the one i'm going to tell you Mm -hmm. um but He's he's known for this kind of loudmouth, not loudmouth, kind of. Uh, I don't know how to say it. He's he was he's really talkative and really outgoing, and not necessarily like loudmouth and belligerent, 
but like really the kind of extroverted, always talking, kind of a yeah, razzle dazzle kind of yeah, yeah, he's that kind of guy. Um, and on June 9th, nineteen ninety nine, Valentine's Mets uh, were playing against the Toronto Blue Jays, and the game went into extra innings. Um, and in the top of the twelfth, Blue Jays had a runner on first, and he attempted to steal. And the catcher for the Mets, Mike Piazza, he's he's kind of a big name, but he was never a particularly good defensive catcher. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Piazza catches it, takes a step forward, fires it to second. They don't quite get him, but it was close. And the umpire calls interference on the catcher for stepping too far forward, like in like towards the plate on a pitch out to try to throw the ball. And was this that a valid call or? It kind of, it's kind of a silly rule because it makes no sense to penalize the catcher just for like taking an extra step in that situation because he didn't make contact with the hitter, which is a valid interference call. Mm. But I guess it's in the rule book, so whatever. Mm. And what that meant was the batter automatically gets first base. So now all of a sudden there's runners on first and second where there had only been run- a runner on first in extra innings where like one run could very easily be the difference. Right. And I don't know, you're not, you're not very familiar with baseball, but managers have a tendency to when there's a really unfair call and they really want to, like, fire their team up, they go out and argue with the umpire. Yes. Uh, I am a very fair-weather Orioles fan, but we have a very famous ex-manager that used to do that yes. a lot. Yes, yeah. uh, and 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 every manager does it once at least in their career. Like every manager goes out and gets in the umpire's face and gets yeah. thrown out of the game because it's of it. It's like uh, it's like hockey fights. Yeah, it's kind of it's and it's but it's very like for show. Like it's very much to like to like, kind of like mine the anger of your players and get them into the game again. Right, because a manager you don't really need a manager to win. Like you don't actually need your coach there. It's all about the players playing well. Right. And so Bobby Valentine heads out there, gets in the umpire's face and gets thrown out of the game pretty much immediately. And in most cases, this would be where the story ends, but because that's a very normal happening in this kind of situation, except the New York Mets broadcast team has a camera pointed at the dugout and, a little while later, they point the camera at the dugout and they have it on. The commentators are talking and they notice a guy in the background with a mustache that they haven't seen before and they don't recognize. And then they go, wait a minute, that's Bobby Valentine wearing a disguise. No fucking way. <laughs> so Bobby... He's guy incognito. Because... <laughs> So normally what managers do is they leave and go back to the clubhouse inside the stadium and they don't come back out. But Bobby Valentine found a fake mustache. This is king Just shit. kind of slipped back into the dugout and hoped not to be noticed. Oh my god. King. <laughs> he was, of course, discovered. And... <laughs> He was then fined $5,000 and suspended for two games. At press time, he could be heard saying, Dratch, fooled again. <laughs> Darn! <laughs> I'll get you next time. And he got, and asked about it, he was like, do I regret it? Yeah, it's $5,000. <laughs> it's a lot of money. <laughs> you know, in hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have worn the fake But 
here is the competence part. I said that the point of this was to fire up your team, and apparently that did the job because the Mets won that game. Amazing. In like Incredible. the 14th inning or something. And then the Mets went on to the playoffs that year. You know what? How could that not have worked? <laughs> the more I think about it, like, there's no universe in which that didn't work and the Mets didn't walk out of that. Yeah. Like, what, are they going to lose the game that their manager put a disguise what? on? At, at the very least, they were motivated by the fact that, like, if we lose, this is the thing people are going to be talking about tomorrow on the radio. <laughs> Let's not do that. Yeah. At a minimum. So that's the end of, that's the end of that story. That's how Bobby Valentine. Nominal. Pumped oh, up his I'm really team. happy you told me that. All right, so that's the end of Big Time Whoopsies. Thank you for telling the story today, Ben. Oh my god, thank you for allowing me to tell the story. This ruled. Yeah, it was a great. It was a great time. Fun was had by all. Yeah. Um, you Except can find first job. He didn't get to go to Disneyland. <laughs> didn't get to go to Disneyland. Uh, you can find Ben uh, at Vonnegutterball Von on Twitter. <laughs> you should follow him on Twitter. He's got a good account. You can find me, you know where. I'm at Eric McAdams Ugg on Twitter, and I'm in a few other places. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Ben. Farewell, all. Thanks for having me on again, Eric. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.